If you do have your Bible with you, we are back in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 uh, together this morning. And then next week, Lord willing, we hope to to finish uh, chapter 24 and verses 22 through 27. And so this is uh, the account of Paul before Felix while he's at Caesarea. Let me read the text and then we'll jump into our time here together this morning. It says this. It says, after and after five days, the high priest... Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming, uh, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while I was standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the debt that I am on trial before you this day. Father, we're grateful to read this account of Paul giving his defense to Felix there in Caesarea as he's Uh, stating that he's not guilty of any crime and and he's really only guilty of one thing of proclaiming the resurrection of preaching Christ and Christ risen from the grave and pray that we would learn about Paul's cheerful defense and as we look at his example we would learn how in our own lives to have courage to take heart to stand firm and to be of great cheer is we have an incredible message. We have the opportunity, the privilege uh, to share with the world. May we do so tirelessly, relentlessly, and without fear. So pray that you would be exalted in our time together this morning as we look at this passage. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, in Oxford, England, stands a a striking statue of three men who were burned at the stake during the English Reformation of October of 1555. The, The three men in that statue at Oxford were burned right there, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. These were three of the most visible victims of Queen Mary's persecution. And Latimer had been imprisoned two separate times for preaching the gospel before the previous monarch, his name was King Henry VIII. And regardless of this, Hugh Latimer was faithful and he was a staunch defender of the reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone. And believe it or not, the reason these men died was for preaching that salvation came through the atonement of the shed blood of Jesus and not through the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation was the Roman Catholic view of communion, and it taught that in order for your sins to be truly atoned for, you must take communion in the holy Roman Catholic manner. This would include attending a Catholic church in good standing and receiving communion from the Catholic priest and then believing that the wine was actually and miraculously turned into the very blood of Christ. This conviction by the Roman Catholic Church gave Rome power over salvation, and it gave them authority over their constituents, and it, and it brought great confusion into their control of the gospel message. But Hugh Latimer preached this, quote, If I see the blood of Christ with the eye of my soul, that is the true faith that his blood was shed for me, close quote. He's saying that salvation is not about works, it's not about taking communion, and it certainly doesn't come through the Roman Catholic Church. Instead, salvation comes through the eye of faith alone. Most famous For his preaching at St. Paul's Cross Church, Latimer was called before King Henry VIII one day. The king demanded that Latimer offer a public apology for for what Henry had been preaching and and, uh, for what Latimer had been preaching that Henry found offensive in his message. And as the story goes, Latimer stood before the king after reading the text for his sermon. Latimer addressed himself as he began to preach before the king. And this is Hugh Latimer, again, addressing himself before the king. He said this, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offense. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, Dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. In other words, he's saying before the king, I I stand before a greater king than you, King Henry VIII. And while I'm mindful of your authority and what you could do to me, I'm more mindful of God. He he even went on to give King Henry that exact same sermon which he had preached the week before that had so offended him. And this time he did so with more energy and with more conviction. 
In a, in a very significant sense, all the reformers, and certainly Hugh Latimer, were very much like the Apostle Paul, both in their doctrine and in their courage. And in our text today, we will find that Paul will give a formal defense before the court of law that was presided over by the officially appointed Roman governor. But Paul's message does not change. He keeps saying the same thing over and over again, even though it was very offensive to his audience. It was with deep conviction and with holy energy that he proclaimed the gospel without hesitation. It's an encouragement for us today to not be intimidated by our culture. Don't be overcome with fear. Don't be distracted from cheerfully making a defense of the gospel. And our job is to be faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is to be courageous soldiers in the Lord's army. Our job is to be motivated heralds of the truth. Our job is to be powerful representatives of grace. And our job is to be cheerful witnesses of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to just look at two headings which outline this passage. Number one, enemies of the gospel will always oppose Christians, verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, we're going to see that witnesses of the gospel will always exalt Christ. Let's start off with number one this morning. Enemies of the gospel will always oppose Christians. In your first blank, if you are taking notes, just says the approach to Felix by Tertullus. The approach to Felix by Tertullus, verses one through four. Again, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace and, and silence, or excuse me, much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, this verse starts off, verse one, it says here, after five days. We're talking about after the five days that Paul had been in Caesarea. He had been there already for five days. But remember, before that, Paul had been arrested in the temple in Jerusalem. He had been tried there by the Sanhedrin. He had been protected by Claudius Lysias. And after a murderous plot had been discovered by Paul's nephew, he was transported by night by an emergency military escort of 470 Roman soldiers that brought him by night to Caesarea. And here he was to be tried by Governor Felix. And on reading the letter from, from Lysias, Felix announced, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And so at this point, Paul was placed in custody there at Herod's Praetorium where he was kept safely. That brings us up to verse one where it says, after he'd been there, after five days, Paul's accusers had finally arrived. There was Ananias, the high priest, and there were some elders of the Jewish nation, and there was this one Tertullus who was a well-known spokesman. And for the high priest himself to have traveled some 60 to 65 miles in the ancient world from Jerusalem to Caesarea shows the seriousness of this situation. 
Ananias, as you may remember, was one of the most corrupt high priests in Israel's history. In fact, according to the Roman historian Josephus, this very Ananias was cruel, evil, and was a thief himself. He, he actually stole from the common priest the tithes that would have gone to them, and he beat anyone who resisted, and he did not hesitate to use violence and to further his goals. And, and, and a few years prior to this, the Romans had even suspected Ananias of committing atrocities against the Samaritans. He was hated even by the Jewish nationalists because of his somewhat pro-Roman stance. And when the Jewish revolt broke out against Rome in AD 66, Ananias was promptly killed by the Jewish zealots. It was Ananias who had originally ordered Paul in the previous text to be struck in the mouth in Acts 23, verse 2. Accompanying the high priest were some of the Jewish elders. This would have most likely been some of the key leaders of the Sanhedrin. And the fact that these religious and political leaders came also in person to accuse Paul shows again how desperately they wanted Paul to be convicted and to be punished once and for all. Interestingly enough, the high priest and the elders themselves did not do the talking in this trial against Paul. They, they brought a certain spokesman, likely a high-powered attorney, to bring their charges against, uh, against Paul to the governor. And Totellus may have been a Roman, or more likely he was a Hellenistic Jew, but he was no doubt a, a selected because he was well-versed in Roman law. It was not unusual for Jews to hire such experts to represent them in Roman legal proceedings. Once Paul had been summoned, the, the hearing began. Flattery is particularly dripping from Tertullius's lips as he attempts to make favorable first impression to the judge. And he really exaggerates his words as, as he butters up the judge in a classic case of kiss-up. And Tertullus expresses gratitude for the great peace brought about by Felix. But the fact was that Felix's reign had been marked by constant unrest and fights between the imperial forces and the oppressed Jews and Samaritans. Nevertheless, because of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, this was a major Roman value, this skilled attorney commends Felix for his administration. And while Felix had managed to suppress some roving bands of the assassins and had also put down the Egyptian false messiah, his methods were so brutal that he had outraged and alienated the Jews, even causing more unrest. If he did carry out any reforms mentioned here in the text, history does not record them. In his inept rule, this actually led to his removal from office by none other than Nero, two years after this very hearing. And despite Tertullus's flattering words, the Jewish people would not have felt much gratitude towards Felix. And so Tertullus then closes his introductory remarks there in verse four with this customary promise to be brief. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. And with such Promises, even though these promises are often broken, Tertullus was apt to keep his since there was little good he could say about Felix and there was as well little bad that he could accurately say about Paul. Psalm 55 verse 21 talks about people like Tertullus. That verse states, 
that his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And again, in Proverbs 26, 28, it says, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Well, at this point, Tertullus turns the case against Paul and he prepares to bring three charges. That's your next blank. Let's look at these three charges or the accusations against Paul that he's gonna make in verses five and six. Number one, your next blank, number one, Paul, he's saying that Paul was a world-renowned troublemaker. You see that in the beginning of verse five. It says, we, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And so Tertullus here in the first part of verse five is saying that Paul was a plague. This word plague means a, a pestilence. It, it means a disease. It, it means a nuisance. If you have an NASB translation in front of you, it says, we found this man to be a real pest. And why did they think that Paul was a pest? A burr under the saddle, a pain in the neck? Well, this first, it first seems to be a nonspecific charge, but Tertullus goes on to describe how Paul had been stirring up riots and dissensions among the Jews throughout the world. This was a, a rather serious charge because Rome did not tolerate insurrection. Notice that Tertullius didn't name any specific instances because if he had done so, Felix may have chosen to transfer his prisoner to that particular region. It was also a very serious uh, offense to charge a Roman citizen with sedition if you didn't have any clear evidence. The truth is, Paul never incited a riot. Paul was actually the riot's victim, not their instigator. In reality, it was the enemies of the gospel who started the riots. The real issue was Gallio as Gallio correctly perceived, was that Jewish hostility uh, was, was very strong towards the gospel. Maybe you remember back in Acts 18, verses 12 through 16, when Paul was in Achaia on his second missionary journey. That, that passage says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man Persuading people to worship God is, is persuading people to worship God is contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So again, we're just showing that it wasn't Paul that was stirring up a ruckus, it was the people stirring up a ruckus and they were often uh, dismantled by the officials. Uh, again, after this account in Acts 18, Paul was in the midst of another riot that you remember in Athens where the city was filled with confusion and they were shouting up, out about their God and, and, uh, and they refused uh, you know, to quit and they, they were forced into this theater where they crammed themselves and then the town clerk quietly uh, quieted the crowd as he says in Acts 19.37, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. 
For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed, he dismissed the assembly. Again, th these are just two uh, simple examples of how Paul was not looking for a fight. Paul was preaching Jesus and him crucified. Paul was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul was preaching that Gentile sinners, as well as Jewish sinners, could be saved by putting their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every time there was a riot, it was in opposition to this message. The riot was not caused at the bidding of Paul, but at the backbiting of the Jews. The riots were not stirred up by Paul and his companions bullying the crowds, but by the Jewish people bellyaching the, the, and butchering Paul's words to infuriate the Jews. Paul came to talk about the love of Christ, not about the hate of man. Paul came to talk about the mercy of God, not to make war with the Jews. Paul came to point people to Jesus, not to pick a fight the second accusation that was made, number two, is that Paul was a leader of the dangerous anti-Roman cult. You see that there at the end of verse five, where it says not only is he stirring up Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. And so here, in the second accusation, Tertullus is basically contending that Paul was some type of cult leader. This is the only place where the term Nazarenes is used to describe Christians. It is possible that Jewish Christians had been given this nickname, especially since the word contained a derogatory and condescending meaning. I mean, you probably remember that Nazareth was considered to be out in the sticks. Nazareth was considered to be an uneducated town in rural Israel. Nazareth was for hillbillies. It was for rednecks. It was for country bumpkins. It's kind of like the town I'm from. This is evidenced by Nathaniel, who said in John 1:46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so Tertullus here is accusing Paul of being the ringleader of the Nazarenes. It's referring to some cult. The word ringleader is a word that would be describing a military term of one who stands in the front rank. The point that's being made is that while the Jews were permitted to practice their faith while under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire, other religions were not allowed the same freedom. So if somehow Tertullus could explain that this is a different sect outside of Judaism, then they wouldn't be allowed to practice. And so he's going on and on about how it's a sect, it's even a, a heretical group of Nazarenes, and they should be squashed. Tertullus is trying to make Christianity look cultic and bizarre. There were potentially, he's trying to make them look like they're potentially a threat to Roman emperor worship. Well, the third accusation leveled by Tertullus found in verses 6 through 8 is he's saying that Paul was caught trying to desecrate the Jewish temple. Verses 6 through 8, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, this accusation is somewhat outside of the Roman law. Nevertheless, Tertullus says that Paul tried to profane and desecrate the temple. 
This was a cover-up of what actually happened as the Jews whitewashed their effort to kill Paul and claimed to have arrested Paul instead. In actuality, the Romans had arrested Paul to protect him from the mob. But there was no evidence that Paul had actually profaned the temple, and if he had, the Jews actually had the right to handle the matter themselves. There was further twisting of the facts by the lawyer given in the last part of verse 6, all of verse 7, and the first part of verse 8. Now, if you're looking carefully at your copy of God's Word before you, you realize that verse 7 is omitted by many uh, translations today, but it was included in some of the ancient manuscripts. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 6 in your copy of God's Word, you'll probably see a marker leading you to the margin or to the bottom of the page. And it says this in my Bible. It says, some manuscripts add, verse 6, we should have judged him according to our law. Then verse 7, but the chief captain, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands. And then the beginning of verse 8, commanding his accusers to come before you. So if this passage is not in the original text, then Tertullus is urging Felix to examine Paul. I think this is somewhat unlikely that Paul would have confirmed Tertullus's false accusation against him. And as we will see, Paul's going to deny these accusations. On the other hand, if this passage is to be included in this text, then Paul's accusers are saying that Lysias took away their power to follow the proper Jewish legal procedure. This is where it possibly says, at the end of verse 6 in the margin, where it says, we would have judged him according to our law. Tertullus is saying, in effect, that Lysias came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. They were confident that by examining Lysias, not Paul, Lysias, Lysias, not Paul, that Felix would be able to find out from him about everything with which we accuse him. I, I know you've got to study it a little bit more to make your own decision, but in summary, if you add in this passage from the margin, Tertullus is accusing Paul of not doing the right thing, but he's also accusing Lysias of not handling the situation correctly. Tertullus believes that if Felix were to examine Lysias, he would realize that Lysias had indeed jumped the gun and should have just allowed the Jews to try this case according to their own Jewish law. Like in many court cases, the arguments are slick, they are arduous, and they are looking for every loophole to bring about the desired result. And at the end of the day, the big picture, the desired result is the same. They wanted Paul to be condemned. And they desired that Paul would be found guilty. And they desired that, that this would result in Paul being turned back over to the Jews so they could do with him what they wanted. And what they wanted was to silence Paul once and for all by condemning him to death. And so after these three accusations that were made against Paul, we also see one more thing in verse 9, your next blank, the, the agreement of the charges by the fellow Jews. Verse 9, that the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. And so at this point, Tertullus, he had his, he had his backup crew chime in. Ananias was in full agreement with these charges. The other Jewish elders and members of the Sanhedrin were in agreement with these charges. They were, they were grandstanding. 
trying to bring about a favorable trial. And these Jews joining in the attack asserted that these things were so. And so what are we learning from all of this? Well, we're learning again, remember the main heading here, number one, that those who are enemies of the gospel will always oppose Christians. They will go to great lengths to oppose the kingdom of God. They will use serpentine skill, political posturing, and demonic deceptions in order to defy the faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not exactly what we're facing in our world and in our culture today? While Christians used to enjoy some level of respect and appreciation in the public square, we are now ridiculed. And while standing up for the truth of the gospel, we are accused of being arrogant and of being inflexible and of being out of touch with the times. And instead of being known as loving and kind, we are thought of as being backwards in our thinking, oppressive in our demeanor, and hateful in our speech. This is coming up, especially in this month, as we, as Christians, don't in any way shape, form, or fashion support the cultural delight in gay pride and the whole LGBTQ plus agenda. In fact, I thought this would be an appropriate time to address that, so this next slide's not in your notes, but let me give you five reasons why we do not and never will celebrate gay pride. You ready? Number one, gay pride opposes God's view of marriage and sexuality as revealed in the Bible. Celebrating the practice of different sexualities, as well as encouraging same-sex attractions and unions, are diametrically opposed to God's intended purpose for marriage and sexuality. And when asked about marriage and divorce, Jesus answered in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, he says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus, as the son of God, could have allowed for a wider interpretation of marriage, even allowing that of a homosexual relationship. But he didn't. Jesus clearly taught that marriage was between a male and a female, between a man and his wife. In addition, the Old and New Testaments alike make it abundantly clear in Leviticus 18.22, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that homosexuality is a sin. In Romans 1, 24 to 27, it says that practicing homosexuality is exchanging the truth for a lie and that those who do so have been given over to a debased mind and are doing the things that ought not be done. Number two, gay pride celebrates what is not good or helpful to human flourishing. If any Christian is partaking in pride events and celebrating LGBTQ plus values, they are doing a great injustice to the human race. The culture is encouraging this group to act on their attractions, that, that God has somehow has identified them to, to be able to do this, but, but we know that God's word talks about this as a sinful action and it's to be forbidden. And even when churches support and encourage gay pride, they uphold values such as tolerance and equality, and, and they're really celebrating values that go against God's word. 
Not, not to mention that this wrecks people's lives and their families as they embrace lust over biblical love. They embrace perversion over purity, and they embrace anti-family behavior over truly practicing the one another's of Scripture. Jesus said in Luke 17, 1 through 2, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were to be hung around his neck and he were to be cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. He's talking about children there, but we're, we're, we understand that the LGBTQ agenda is to grab the hearts of children and to convince them that this is okay. That's why we're fighting this in elementary schools, right? And in public libraries. Let me move on. Number three, gay pride conflicts with our true identity in Christ. Gay pride is all about celebrating one's sexual identity, accepting who you are and being true to yourself. And if we truly accept who we are, we would realize that we are all sinful beings created in God's image who all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. However, just because we were born into sin does not mean that it is who we were created to be. Nor does it mean that we should therefore embrace it and act upon it. Thankfully, when we give our lives to Christ, our primary identity is now with him, not in ourselves. In fact, once we are united with Christ, we leave behind our old selves, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new or the new has come. Number four. Gay pride is overly sexualized. In many of the gay pride parades across the country, footage can be seen of people promoting sexual acts, showing nudity, and flaunting outlandish dress and behavior. And while this is not true of all homosexual people, it does appear to be a common and frequent part of pride. By contrast, the Bible speaks of modesty and encourages us not to cause others to stumble into sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christians are called to draw attention to God with their bodies, not with their sexuality. And as we have already seen, the Bible speaks of sex within the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything that promotes sex outside of a biblical marriage is an abomination. Therefore, for Christians to support pride in any way is wholly unbiblical. Number five, the Bible teaches humility over pride. Humility is central to the gospel. Self-assertion is not. Pride is not. Jesus expressed deep humility by exchanging the joy of heaven for the anguish of a cross, and he calls us to do the same. Humility, to, to walk in this same humility and finding our identity in him, trusting in his righteousness and not our own. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what should our response be to this gay pride month? 
Well, we're definitely not celebrating it, right? But in short, the best Christian response to Pride Month is polite non-participation. Followers of Jesus should decline to have anything to do with pride events. We should speak the truth in love when given the appropriate opportunity. It's good for us as Christians to articulate why we don't want to and why we cannot by conviction somehow promote the ideals behind gay pride. We should avoid giving the worldly culture exactly what it wants, ammunition, with which to falsely accuse the gospel of hateful intolerance. That's why I'm saying we're gonna be intolerant, but not in a hateful way. Many will be offended by the truth spoken in humility and love, but that means their conflict is with God, not with us. And believers cannot change cultural views of sexuality by trying to change the culture itself in some broad sense, but, We can do, what we can do is reach out to individual people, letting the Holy Spirit work from there. And when we are winsome and loving, those who respond with hate have none but themselves to blame. Whether the surrounding culture chooses holiness or depravity, our mission is unchanged, calling sinners to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my annual gay rant right there, all right? Just giving you a reminder of what God's called us to do during this month and how to think. And what I'm saying is that all of those who oppose under number one, right, all of those who are enemies of the gospel, they will always oppose Christians over whatever issue. For Paul, it was about some of his Christian ideals, not necessarily, you know, the homosexual LGBTQ thing, but that's kind of what we're facing today. That's the biggest thing coming down the pike against us as Christians, and they're going to always oppose us. But you know what? Number two here says that witnesses of the gospel will always exalt Christ. That's what Paul did. That's what we want to do. Witnesses of the gospel will always exalt Christ. How do we do that? A, in your next blank, a consistent biblical hope. We see here Paul giving a consistent biblical hope in verses 10 through 16. It says, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets." having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So always, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So in these verses, Paul speaks for his own defense. He needs no attorney. He's quite capable He's highly educated. He's a gifted orator himself. And so he seizes this opportunity to give a public witness for the gospel. And he's basically gonna say that Christianity is not a threat to Rome in any physical way. And so he shows how this new movement that he's being accused of is actually grounded in old promises of the scripture. Rather than interrogating Paul, 
Felix simply, there in verse 10, indulges him with, uh, with a head nod in verse 11, right? He kind of nods to him, uh, verse 10 it is. Verse 10, he nods for him to be able to speak. And so Paul begins with a few benevolent comments. Please note, Paul does not use flattery. He is being kind and truthful in what he says. Paul is aware that Felix does have some years under his belt and that he is somewhat aware of Jewish practices, most likely due to the fact that Felix was married to Drusilla, who had a Jewish heritage. And for this reason, Paul says, and this is where we get our title for the sermon, Paul says that he cheerfully makes his defense. And as we will see, Paul has nothing to hide. And he's extremely confident in God's work in this situation for God's glory and for his good. And I just love that. I I love that, that we can give a cheerful offense. You know what? A lot of times I feel like we're like sad and apologetic and kind of like a negative way. And Paul's like, I I cheerfully make my defense. I have nothing to hide. In fact, I want to share with you about the best message you've ever heard. And it's with this in mind that Paul's public witness here, he gives it in three parts. In verses 11 through 16 that we're looking at, Paul is basically saying, my religious record is clear. I have not broken any law. And Paul goes straight to the specific charges and brings up that it was, it's only been 12 days since he even entered to Jerusalem to begin to worship there. And according to verse 1 of this chapter, Paul had been in Caesarea for five of those days. So I know you can do the math. If he entered Jerusalem in 12 days and he's been in Caesarea five, that only gives him seven days in Jerusalem. Seven days is not a very long time in order to stir up some type of riot I mean, according to what happened while he was in Jerusalem, we know in Acts 21, 23 through 27, the majority of that week, Paul was spent sponsoring some men who were involved in the Nazarite vow, as well as participating in the purification process himself. The point being that it was next to impossible to instigate this riot when he had only been in Jerusalem for one week and much of that time was occupied. He wasn't disputing or stirring up crowds either in the city or in the temple. In fact, Paul wasn't even recorded to have preached a sermon during that week or to make a public address at all until after he was arrested. So there's really no proof or evidence to the contrary. But in verse 14, Paul does make a confession. He says that he is a follower of the way. According to Acts 9.2, Paul used to persecute those according to the way. But after he was converted on the road to Damascus, Paul realized that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And what Paul's accusers are calling a sect or even heresy, Paul argues is actually rooted in Old Testament scriptures. Paul is simply saying, I worship the God of our fathers. He's saying, I am Jewish. He's saying, I worship the same God the patriarchs worship. I worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I worship the God of Samuel. I worship the God of David. I worship the God of Solomon. And Paul is also saying that I believe everything laid down in the law and written down in the prophets. He's saying that I believe in the Torah. And I believe in the other writings of the Old Testament. Paul is insisting that to be a Christian in no way forsakes the worship of the one true God, but rather to know him fully through the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a sense, Paul is turning the tables on his accusers and inferring that they were not truly worshiping the God of the Old Testament since they had rejected Christ. 
Jesus had talked about this multiple times, but one verse would be in John 5, 23, that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. And he goes on in chapter 6 and in chapter 8 with long discussions saying, if you really knew God, then you would accept me because he sent me, and I only speak what he tells me to say. Paul was therefore more orthodox than his accusers since he served the God of his fathers and believed in the messianic prophecies that they had all been fulfilled in Jesus. And the resurrection was the hope of the Jewish people. The resurrection is taught about in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah chapter 53. It's in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It's what Abraham believed when he demonstrated obedience in Genesis 22, when he goes to sacrifice his son. And so Paul is placing himself within the mainstream of Jewish theology. Paul points out that all of his accusers also believe in a resurrection. Paul is explicitly referring to a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. This would be the only time in Acts or in any of his epistles that Paul actually refers to this. Paul's belief in the resurrection and the coming judgment was not mere doctrinal orthodoxy without impact to his own life. It wasn't just theoretical or something in the far-fetched future. It was also something that impacted his life every day. And it caused him to do his best to maintain a blameless conscience before both God and man. So to summarize this first argument, Paul is saying, I serve the God of the Hebrews. I believe in everything in the Hebrew scripture. I hope in the God of the Hebrews. And I anticipate a resurrection and a final judgment before God. We should take notice of Paul's seamless transition to the Christian faith. He first dealt with the charges and then he gave a defense of the faith. But he doesn't merely want to defend himself, he also wants to proclaim the gospel. And this is an excellent example for us to look at for ways that we can in our daily conversations make gospel transitions when we talk to people. Say, hey, I know I was accused of this and I was accused of this. I'm talking about the hope of a resurrection. I'm talking about the hope of an afterlife. Let me tell you about it. He's going to get to, it's about the Lord Jesus. His second defense in verses 17 to 19 is Paul says he basically, he has a blameless civil character. Paul is saying that, that his civil behavior was blameless. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now, after several days, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to be making an accusation should they have anything against me. So he's saying he's blameless. In verse 17, Paul returns to the issue about the defiling of the temple. He gives his version of the story. He tells Felix that he was bringing charitable gifts to Jerusalem. These gifts have been mentioned on a number, a number of times already that he collected from the Gentile churches on his third missionary journey, and he's bringing that money to Jerusalem to give to the poor Jews. He talks about it in his other letters in Romans 15, 25 to 33, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, all discuss this act of Paul giving. Paul had devoted a lot of time and a lot of effort explaining the importance of this particular collection. And he also adds that he presented offerings while in the temple, 
alluding to that sponsorship that we've talked about where Paul made on behalf of four other men making the Nazarite vow. And so Paul continues to describe how when he was engaging in this activity in the temple, he was discovered by his opponents. And it discusses that that there were some Jews from Asia, verse 18, According to Acts 21, 29, this accusation was that Paul brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into the Jewish court. And this was entirely unproven, however. And so in verse 19, Paul says that his accusers should have been there arguing their case if they truly had any evidence or anything substantial to prove. But these accusers were conspicuously absent from the trial. They weren't even there because they had no case. And Paul was confident that no criminal charges could be made against him. This leads us to our final defense that Paul makes, to verses 20 to 21, a proclamation of the resurrection, verses 20 and 21, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Here, again, we're looking at a proclamation of the resurrection. Paul is clearly proclaiming the resurrection. He is essentially saying, my gospel message is the issue because I'm preaching that Jesus is alive. Paul is pressing home the point. Not only are my accusers not here, he's saying, but these men who are here, who say that I have done something wrong, are not being honest about what the real issue is. The real issue is, verse 21, that it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul is accomplishing two objectives with this final statement. First, he's reinforcing the true nature of the high priest's dispute with him, which was entirely theological and not a matter of Roman uh, responsibility. Second, I believe that he also wanted Felix to think about his life and the eternal consequences of his sin, and he hoped to establish a context for a future discussion concerning salvation, which we're going to look at next week in the remainder of the chapter. Paul had a wonderful ability to bring up the resurrection of Jesus in all sorts of situations, The resurrection is, after all, the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Paul said so in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I mean, Paul's saying, let's be honest. I was arrested for being I was arrested for being what they called a world-renowned troublemaker, but I'm not. I was arrested for being the leader of a dangerous anti-Roman cult, but I'm not. I was arrested for desecrating the Jewish temple, but I didn't. I'm on trial before you for this and for this alone, for preaching the resurrection. Later, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14, Paul wrote, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Again, the resurrection 
clearly shows the sufficiency of Christ's death, the supremacy of his lordship, and the inevitability of his return as the judge. And we would do well to follow Paul's example of funneling conversations to this life-changing, world-altering, and hope-giving event of the resurrection of Christ. As 1 Corinthians 15, 20 states, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you understand? The reason that Paul can give a cheerful defense of the faith is because of the resurrection. That's his ace in the hole. He's, he understands, I haven't done anything wrong. Even if they accuse me falsely, I know because Christ was raised from the dead, I have eternal life. And the reason that we can be forgiven of our sin is because of the resurrection. The reason that we have hope in this life is because of the resurrection. And at the end of the day, it all boils down to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So no matter what the culture is doing, no matter what the culture is saying, no matter what you are being accused of, no matter what you're being persecuted for, no matter what is being accurately or inaccurately being said about you as a Christian, you can know today that Jesus is alive and that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And even though it gets really murky and all the other types of persecution, they're really persecuting you for that one fact that you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that you believe in a resurrection and that you will die for that. That's what they're really upset about. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We can be encouraged with that message this morning that Jesus reigns in his church and that Jesus is coming back to judge the world and that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is our cheerful defense. Maybe you're here this morning and you can't make that defense. You don't have a lot of cheer in defending your Christian faith because your Christian faith is weak or it doesn't exist at all. And if that's you this morning, I'm calling you out of darkness into light. I'm calling you out of fear into faith. I'm calling you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that he bled and died for sinners like you. That even if on this morning that you would come to him and repent of all of your sins and believe that Christ was was persecuted, that he was, uh, that he was uh, killed, crucified, is the word I was looking for, that he was crucified on the cross, and that he was raised from the dead, you can be born again. It can happen on this very day, and you can have joy in your heart. You can make cheerful defense of the gospel. And if that's you this morning, after we finish our service at the very end, we'll have some people standing over here. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to invite you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus and explain more to it. Or if you need prayer and encouragement in any way at the end of the service, we'll be here to serve you. But for now, let's take home just real quick some application. Number one, how do you respond when the enemies of the gospel come after you? How do you respond? Do you see anywhere in the text where Paul's complaining? Do you see anywhere in the text where Paul was upset, angry, miserable, you see anything like that? No, he's gonna make a cheerful defense. When people come after you, give a cheerful defense of the gospel. That's number two. How are you faithfully exalting Christ in our adverse culture? I get it. We, we wanna go vote. We wanna fight for political things, but that's not our ultimate fight, right? Our ultimate fight is without weapons of this world, but it's with the gospel in our hearts where we can have individual conversations with people who are either struggling with LGBTQ 
or condoning LGBTQ and explain why that is a disaster because it goes against God and it goes against humanity as God teaches. And it's a gospel conversation. Number three, how are you living out a consistent biblical hope in the resurrection? I hope that you're letting the resurrection drive your defense, that it's not something that you just assume, well, Jesus was raised from the dead. No, it's everything. Every sermon is an Easter sermon. Right? It's because of the resurrection. That's why we're here today. I hope that you'll think and pray through these things as you discuss together with your families even this afternoon. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, the privilege of examining your word and just looking at a kind of a long narrative, but just a clear defense of, of Paul about the false accusations, but more importantly, him turning the conversation into a gospel conversation, him wanting to exalt Christ, him wanting to preach about the resurrection, him wanting to point Felix and Ananias and the other Jewish uh, people there from the Sanhedrin that it's really about Christ being raised from the dead. And I pray that you would give us that same clarity, give us that same conviction, give us that same joy, that we would have that cheerful defense at the tip of our tongue, that no matter how difficult the situation may be, give us wisdom to address the things at hand, but then to point towards our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as a church to bear up under any persecution or difficulty that we face. Help us to be overcome with gratitude and thanksgiving and help us to be fired up today and every day of our lives for the truths of the gospel, that they would be on display clearly in what we say and in how we live. And so I pray that you would even prepare our hearts as we prepare to take part in the Lord's table today, that you would be exalted in our midst. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.